this afternoon uh, with the uh, help of uh, the mother of all Buddhas, Prajnaparamita, and with her support and uh, in her company, I would like to reflect with you about time, about how we're experiencing time now, what is happening to human experience of time, and what that has to do with our taking part in the great turning, what that has to do with our understanding what's befalling uh, life on planet Earth. See, I'm running where to anchor this so that I can stand up and draw something. Mm. Uh oh. She's so clever. <laughs> well, uh, I got fascinated by the nature of time. Uh, as we're experiencing right now, uh, in the course of what led up to uh, the study action group I was mentioning to you it, that was uh, taking place a little over 20 years ago, over a four-year period, uh, having to do with uh, nuclear waste and the generation of radioactive materials and what that meant for life on earth and what that meant to our understanding of time. And that has quite had a huge impact on my life, that whole exploration around time. So I'd like to distill that for you uh, and then uh, after talking about it, uh, do an interactive practice and then have our break. Then more adventures in time after that. So uh, I see that the mainstream view of time uh, uh, in our mainstream culture, as it has been in the West for quite a while. This Maybe is gonna... not so clever. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe I put it on my pants. So it's been linear, linear and unidirectional. So let's draw that. The arrow of time. which goes from past to future. And here we are somewhere in here in this uh, moment that we call the present time. And the 
time moves only in this direction. What's we've lived, what's past, yesterday, last year, our childhood, our ancestors, all of that, that past is gone. It's done. It's over. It's irretrievable. Disappears from sight. Might leave a few material mementos around in terms of books and monuments, but uh, it's over. And that the future, well, the future remains an abstraction. Not very real, because as soon as we get to what was the future, it's the present. And the future just recedes. So both the past and the future are kind of uh, ungraspable, not factors in our life. It's either gone or never, and not yet, not ever yet. So this has been the uh, material for a lot of wonderful poetry and for nostalgia and for uh, drama and heartbreak and just missing the boat and all of that. It's just part of the beautiful song of what it is to be a human uh, on, uh, in space-time. Now, there's something that has been, and here we might as well mention this. Here's the present. There we are. Something has been uh, happening to this experience of linear, unidirectional time uh, in our culture and in our lifetimes for most of us. And that has been, it has been an acceleration of time. Do you have the impression that time is speeding up? Well, it really is. So uh, what would be causing that? This has been uh, two, two, uh, views of this have caught my attention. And uh, one is uh, the uh, acceleration in terms of speed, and the other is in this what's happening to time is a rupture, again, a broken connection between the present and the future and the past. So as far as the speeding up, Well, we can see that that is a function of two things occur to me recently. I mean, not recently. Well, yeah, I guess it's recently, if you think of 20 years as recent. Uh, But pretty obviously, is that one of the causes that, well, maybe let me ask you, what would cause time to accelerate? What? Yeah, so things are changing very fast. That's good. So change itself. And what is causing that change? More knowledge. They keep discovering more knowledge faster. That's right. So there's a speed in acquiring knowledge. And what would be propelling that? 
multitasking, several things happening at the same time, so we get a sense of more movement, more... Yeah, and because we have means of learning more, so we see more things changing because we have communications. But that touches with one of the fundamental causes, which is technology. In this technological era, what does technolo- what are we using technology for? To do more things more efficiently. And to be, make it more efficient means doing more in less time. So the whole thrust of technology in so many different uh, areas of life and fields of industry and even scholarship and medicine has to do with uh, getting something done in less time. That's efficiency. That's the uh, mindset. And we just, it seems so natural to us that we don't even question it. So to, and in order for uh, that to happen, there's a drive to create technology that's faster and faster. And that can operate in smaller and smaller units of time so that we measure the efficacy and efficiency of a process or a machine uh, in terms that are now so tiny that it's beyond our capacity as biological organisms to sense that passage of time. Talking about nanotechnology and nanoseconds. So that the thrust of technology itself is uh, hurrying us and making things move ever and ever and ever and ever faster. And what this is doing to the mind, uh, that's been very interesting. Uh, It's uh, made it hard for us to have a sense of finishing anything. And particularly when this is applied to communications. And the uh, folks who, in my experience, have done the most interesting work in this have been the sociologists and have been in uh, Europe, in Germany, and Scandinavia. I have taught uh, two or three class courses uh, in San Francisco at CIIS. California Institute of Integral Studies on time. And one of the books that we use is uh, called The Tyranny of the Moment, that this is, you are squeezed into a smaller and smaller frame of time and that you're this always having to hurry. So that's by a guy named uh, Thomas Erickson, and that's very interesting. So you have an acceleration of time, of speed. And another factor of that is, and you haven't mentioned it yet, our growth economy. So you set the goals and you measure the success of your corporation or any economic undertaking. 
and you uh, want the returns as fast as possible. That's how you measure the value of what you're doing. So that what you and your, say, your corporation accomplishes or earns in this quarter of the year is to be more than the quarter last, the last quarter or the same quarter a year ago. So there's a drive to uh, move faster or to put it more accurately for short-term thinking. There's a story about that that I wanted to check out more accurately, but this is the way I heard it from Rainforest Action Network that can show this dramatically. Uh, Rainforest Action Network, which does a lot of very creative work around corporations and their effects on the natural world, they had done a study of the whaling industry and shown that if uh, the harvests were just diminished a little bit of a certain species of whale, it would not go extinct. And that they could argue then to the corporation, in this case Mitsubishi, if you reduce your target, your catch, just this much, there will be the species there for you to continue to fish in years to come. And this was looked pretty um, thrilling way of presenting this argument, and they took it to uh, Mitsubishi, and they totally, the CEO they dealt with said, I totally see your point, but we cannot afford to do that. Because once this resource has uh, been harvested, then we'll turn to another one. Because you have to keep up the maximum return. So it's a, uh, it's a rush to the shortest term thinking, and it's making us kind of crazy and actually kind of stupid. So there is this speeding up here uh, that's both uh, through technology, because we can, and through um, growth economics, because we think we must. And so what, is, what that has done, uh, I propose, is that, and this is, we were talking about this in our study action group back then, uh, on how we deal with uh, some of the problems we're generating. It's like, here we are in the present, and I want to draw a little... Um, what do you call what a hamster wheel uh, in there that we're running faster and faster and faster uh, with each new labor-saving device and with each new cranking of, of the economy. In addition to that, what became as we were looking in our study action group at why were we making so many thousands of metric tons of nuclear waste without knowing where to put it or how to handle it? Uh, is that we were being hurried out of our minds, and both industry and government have got put pressures to quickly solve that without stopping things. Wait a minute, guys, 
We don't know where to put it. We don't know what to do with it. There's not time for that. And then on the other thing, there is what um, we call a broken connection between the past generations and the future ones. And this is a phrase, broken connection, used by psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton, who was looking at the effects of uh, nuclear bombs. And he wrote, you may recall, a very interesting book on on, uh, Hiroshima and uh, under the whole phrase psychic numbing and the whole examination exploration of what the capacity to end life, if we have the technical capacity to end life on our planet through the use of nuclear bombs and nuclear winter, what that does to our sense, uh, to our mind. And what Robert J. Lifton said that it causes a couple of things. One, a psychic numbing. He was the one who coined the term psychic numbing. He first applied it to the people who were bombed, the hypocrisia in Japan. But then he found, wait a minute, but each of these characteristics of this psychic numbing uh, seems to apply to my own country people, the men and women of, of the United States that dropped the bomb. And uh, so this has entered our conversation and has been uh, very useful as we see how uh, tempting it is for people uh, to deny, the deny people caught in denial of varying kinds of uh, humongous dangers that is just ugh, too much to think about. And so you can say, well, it's the eco-terrorists trying to scare us and so forth. So the broken connection would be a sense that, uh, or to quote the words of Robert Lifton, he says there's a sense of, and this is in a book of his called The Broken Connection, that uh, between the generation, In the people living now, there is a sense of, quote, biological severance between themselves and the beings of the past and the beings of the future. Interestingly enough, if you feel that the future is in doubt, that has a mirror effect on your sense of the reality of the past. So there's something for you to reflect on but it is something that appears both in the, in the individuals and in the culture. So I studied this because it was trying to help me make sense of the fact that perfectly sane and often upstanding people were involved in this case, and my case was uh, radioactive waste, Uh, that would cripple and kill for uh, millions of years. You know, radioactive uh, uranium and depleted uranium, the half-life, not even the hazardous life, half-life 
is 4.5 billion years. It's a length of time that it will cripple and kill that's as long a period as we impute to the planet herself. So we... uh, In the very fact that we are creating these problems for ourselves, I was seeing the broken connection at work. Are you following me? Now, as I describe in Widening Circles, my memoir, I went around and talked to uh, nuclear scientists as to uh, what to do with the reactors once that they were uh, finished making waste and and embrittled and had to be taken apart, or what we do with the waste. And I was uh, satisfied that they really didn't know. And so I thought, whom to ask? Well, it seemed to me that the people to ask would be the future generations. To the future humans, this fact that we had made this stuff and left it around to cause disease and death and birth deformities and destruction of the DNA, left it around, uh, would be what they'd remember about us. It's the longest lasting thing we'll have made. So I thought, they're the people I will ask. Well, here, this um, way of seeing time wasn't any use to me. How, do you, how can you ask the future ones when they're way out at a place you can't reach with this one-way arrow of time? So what I did was I began looking around for other ways. And I remember hearing poets or philosophers or mystics saying, our sequential chronological time is just a function of our kind of consciousness. Okay. Well, then that might be that in another kind of consciousness we could hang out together with the ancestors and the future ones somehow. And so I began looking uh, for those, and both, and I found both in uh, mystics and philosophers and, uh, of course, the poets, uh, ways of configuring time differently. And in this way, I can present it like that, this. That the present is here, just like here, but instead of the past being gone, gone, forever irretrievable, and the future being forever inaccessible, the beings of the past and the beings of the future surround us. All right, this is kind of a different way of looking at it. You see? And we began to uh, examine how this would fit for some of the experiences that humans have had, particularly humans who are uh, in uh, 
altered, slightly altered states of consciousness uh, with meditation, prayer, uh, arduous forms of yoga, uh, psychedelics, and dream life. And in, so there was a book that had a big effect on me called An Experiment with Time by a British engineer where he examined people's capacity, stories of provisional dreaming, previsional dreaming, where you dream about something before it's happened. And from these experiments meticulously done uh, in the the 20th century, I think it was about the mid-century, he concluded, this was his way of seeing time too, that uh, our inhabiting the present moment with the ancestors and future beings surrounding us, that in a dream state, we can open up a little bit to what's happening in the next few days or the, what's happened in the last few days. And that's in our dreams. And he it was his opinion that this was what, uh, his explanation for the experience we have of déjà vu. That déjà vu comes from our encountering or experiencing something that we've just dreamed about. At any rate, um, my interest here is not in uh, persuading you or the world or anybody of uh, a different nature of time or sort of an ontology of time, but what can be done with assisting our moral imagination. And with this as a kind of mental image in our moral imagination, we can uh, hang out with those of the past and those of the future. And I haven't uh, gone, I know that with your shamanic work, this might be relevant to, to, in the shamanic work you did, you sometimes go into the past and future. Yeah, so it can, uh, I could have made a a career of thinking only about this and trying to dope out the Joanna Macy theory of (laughs) all time at once. (laughs) But uh, I was more interested in figuring out what to do about the nuclear waste and so in our study action group, um, we began to uh, imagine that this was the nature of time and to uh, role play uh, future beings. And it became the easiest thing in the world. And a lot of bright ideas came to us in the interactions uh, conversations between present day and future beings. Some of the language that I've come to use 
around where we are in our world now comes from uh, those. So I'm about to share with you uh, one of the uh, practices that we developed in our study action group and that has really taken off. Uh, people love it and people I've never even met are doing it in places I've never even gone. And uh, it, uh, it says something about our readiness at, at ontologically or in our very, in our very nature uh, that uh, to um, <clears throat> take the future seriously, not just as a moral duty, but as a natural, uh, just the way you would offer a thirsty person a drink of water is the most natural thing in the world. Uh, when I was, we began to call this kind of work deep time work, and uh, I was writing about it already in the uh, f- first book about the work that reconnects in the first book called World is Lover, World is Self. So it goes back quite a ways. Uh, but it has grown ever more fascinating to me. So I feel that this is like the uh, cutting edge of my uh, mind, uh, its journey in this lifetime. And it's, so first of all, I want to just give you a couple of poems because I've been rattling away at you and you've been being so kind to try to understand or maybe you already understand it all and you say she's stating the obvious, but uh, <coughs> I would, uh, it's always good to, to have a poem, don't you think? Um, it has been easier for um, people to uh, hear it too, yeah. to uh, look back uh, and feel connections through what we've lived. So there's the whole new cosmology of working with Father uh, Thomas Berry and Brian Swim and. <clears throat> Miriam McGillis and the whole uh, universe story. And that's influenced me a lot, uh, that we've come this long way. Uh, but relatively few of them have gone to the other side of the present toward the future and uh, seeing what this means. But here's a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, that I just love. It's called The Old Mendicant. You know who he means by that. The Buddha. And each of you. So you listen to this as if uh, he's talking to you. It's really kind of like a love poem. So here it is, a love poem to you. Being rock, being gas, being mist, being mind, being the mesons traveling among galaxies with the speed of light, you have come here, my beloved one. Your eyes shine so beautiful and deep. You have taken the path traced for you 
by both the non-beginning and the never-ending. You say that on the way here, you have gone through millions of births and deaths. Innumerable times, you have been transformed into firestorms in outer space. Yep. You have used your own body to measure the age of the mountains and rivers. You have manifested yourself (coughs) as trees, as grass, as butterflies, as single-celled beings, and as chrysanthemums. (laughs) The eyes with which you look at me this afternoon tell me that you never died, and your smile invites me into the game whose beginning no one knows, the game of hide-and-seek. Oh, green caterpillar, you are solemnly using your body to measure the length of the rose branch that grew last summer. Everyone says that you, dear one, were just born this spring. But tell me, how long have you been around? Your deep and silent smile. Why wait until this moment to reveal yourself to me? Oh, caterpillar, suns, moons, and stars flow out each time I exhale. Who knows that the infinitely large must be found in your tiny body? Upon each point on your body, thousands of Buddha fields have been established. And with each stretch of your body, you measure time from the non-beginning to the (laughs) never-ending. So he rips away any sense of limitation to the time that is our time. Now, for me and my life, I've been more focused on not only on the past, but on the future and the future ones. And they have been um, incredibly helpful to me. I, uh, they've taken on a reality to me. I have realized, as one of my teachers Sister Rosalie Bertel, a nun who's a very famous radiologist, witness at many, a trial of any nuclear activists, that every being who will ever live on earth is here now. Every being who will ever live is here now. Where? In our ovaries and in our gonads and in our DNA and the choices we make now, often under hurry and deluded by greed and fear, have everything to do with, well, they'll have a chance to be born sound of mind and body. And I will close with a poem about the future from one of my hero teachers, Archbishop Oscar Romero uh, from El Salvador, 
written soon before he was gunned down by the death squads that our government was supporting. He became very brave after he was named Archbishop. And he died in soon after this, shot down. But there's what he said. It sometimes helps to step back and take the long view. Nothing we do is complete. No statement says all that could be said. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. That is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything. And there's a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it's a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for God's grace to enter and do the rest. You may never see the end results. We may never see the end results. We are prophets of a future, not our own. So I would like to um, uh, invite you to uh, take part in the activity that we started in our study action group. So if you would put down what you're writing and stand and take a stretch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.